We can judge our progress by the courage of our questions and the depth of our answers, our willingness to embrace what is true rather than what feels good. Carl Sagan Welcome everybody to the podcast, Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. I'm Credo and my co-host is Glaucon. We both invite you to take historical ideas within their context along with us, examine the thinkers and the timeless ideas they provide to us. These ideas are as relevant today as they were back then. It's our hope and our belief that in doing so would bring us closer to the truth. Just note that the views expressed by the host do not in any way reflect the personal views of the hosts themselves. All right, let's do this. Right, so tonight we're going to talk about Spinoza, and he's another Renaissance philosopher, another rationalist like Descartes and Leibniz. His first name, Bento, and in Hebrew, that's Baruch, and in Latin, Benedictus, and all three of those mean blessed. May or may not be appropriate in this case, we'll find out. Spinoza was born in Amsterdam in 1632. We know that Amsterdam was a very liberal place, like the San Francisco of the day, perhaps. And people like Descartes and Spinoza were given enough freedom in Holland to be able to think and discover the things that we enjoy today from them. So that's something we can be really thankful for. We can be thankful that uh, Holland was a place where people were able to think freely and the power of the church wasn't so great that it crushed all intellectual freedom. So he was Jewish and he studied with the rabbis when he was young and people believe that he was most likely a brilliant student, which makes sense when we look at his work. You know, uh, of the three rationalists, you know, we know from our previous podcasts, that the rationalists want to see a logical picture of reality where everything comes together, a picture of reality that kind of, in a sense, mimics mathematical things. And we know also from our discussions of Descartes and Leibniz that they were both profound mathematical geniuses. Uh, Spinoza, very interestingly, really didn't do much in the way of math. But when we get to the ethics, which we're going to look at in our third podcast on Spinoza, it's going to become really clear really quickly that he is maybe the most rational and deductive, logically speaking, in nature compared to Descartes and Leibniz. He ended up producing a philosophical work that's the most similar to mathematical deductive systems out of the three kind of powerhouse rationalists, which are Leibniz and Descartes and Spinoza. So he never really made it to the upper levels of study when he was studying the Talmud, when he was studying with the rabbis. He, at the age of 17, was forced to cut it short and he had to help support his family's business. Uh, his family, the ancestors of, the, of his family were Muranos who were descended from a Sephardic Jewish sect. 
in Portugal, they, about a century before his father was born, had to flee Portugal because of the Portuguese Inquisition. And massive amounts of people fled the peninsula and his family settled in Holland. And that's good for all of us because we get to enjoy Spinoza's intellectual brilliance because of where he was born. And uh, one more thing we can say about the Portuguese Jews of Amsterdam is that they were very proud of their identity. So that, that they maintained that identity even, you know, as I said, his father was born 100 years after they arrived, but they still had a pretty strong identity there. And part of the reason for the cosmopolitan nature of the Netherlands, of Holland, has to do with the fact that Amsterdam and Rotterdam are huge merchant venues, right? There's huge areas of shipping and tons of people are coming in and going out. And so you get this influx of different ideas about things. You get people from all over the world arriving. You get people arriving with different religious views, different philosophical views, different political views. And when those things mix together, it produces a kind of liberality of spirit. And we talked about the Piraeus, the port of Piraeus, close to Athens, and we talked about how they were inducting a god from a different place, from the Thracians. And so there is another example of that, this kind of way in which places close to the ocean where there's a lot of shipping and uh, mixing of peoples produce these kinds of places where we get some real intellectual work that happens. Another factor which helped Spinoza with his thinking is that he was around and associated with collegians. And they were founded in 1619. They were a group of free-thinking Christians, Protestants. And they allowed for a very wide diversity of opinion, and free thinking was kind of allowed in their group, and Spinoza was undoubtedly affected by them. And he had other, other people that affected him and caused him to think about things in a very kind of liberal way. So we can also say that, you know, he viewed the Bible as non-Mosaic, which means that the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, were not written only by Moses. And he called that into question. He called into question the perfect authenticity of the Bible and the way that people viewed the Bible. And he didn't do this lightly, you know, and, and uh, it's not something that he just decided one day, he woke up and decided, I'm, I'm going to change my views on these ancient writings you know, which he was trained in. And one of the quotes here we can read is, if anyone thinks my criticism regarding the authorship of the Bible is of too sweeping a nature and lacking sufficient foundation, I would ask him to undertake to show us in these narratives a definite plan such as might legitimately be imitated by historians in their chronicles. If he succeeds, I shall at once admit defeat, and he will be the mighty Apollo. For I confess that all my efforts over a long period have resulted in no such discovery. Indeed, 
I may add that I write nothing here that is not the fruit of lengthy reflection. And although I have been educated from boyhood in the accepted beliefs concerning scriptures, I have felt bound in the end to embrace the views I hear express. So here we see that he's struggled with this. This has been a, a real worry that he's had to work through, through a long period of time. And after doing that, he feels compelled to express himself in a genuine way. And here we get a kind of a feeling of something like a kind of Socratic personality, a person like Socrates, who's bound by the higher calling to express and discover the truth, and that that is more important and more powerful than something like the authenticity and perfection of scripture, which at this time was profoundly powerful, right? So that that's a, a pretty powerful person to do that at that time. And we know that you know people were suffering for uh, expressing themselves intellectually at this time, even in Holland, but less so there than other places. Um, one other thing we can say about this kind of an interesting note about the non-Mosaic nature of the Pentateuch is that it's written in the third person. People don't usually write about themselves in the third person. It's also true that Moses' death is described in the first five books of the Bible, and that might be a difficult thing for someone to do, <laughs> to, to write down their death and what, how they died. So those are just a couple of interesting things that would cause a person to kind of think that maybe they don't have Moses as the author. You know, the thing about Spinoza, uh, especially as you were going over that, if you know a little bit about him, you know, it can kind of seem like he came out of nowhere, but I appreciate you going through that because as much as he is a product of his time, he's a product of the place. I mean, I was even thinking as you were going over that about how, you know, he takes the idea of conviction, which was something, you know, religious people certainly felt at the time and basically turned it into, as you mentioned, this kind of Socratic, you know, dedication, this unwavering pursuit of the truth, which I thought was just even to his own detriment, as we'll soon find out. But as you mentioned, his family, they were merchants, and they specialized in importing fruit, dried fruit. And uh, it was a lucrative business. It was in full flare by the 1650s. But his father died in 1654, and him and his brother were set to take over the business. And so this would mark the beginning of changes that, you know, many believe set in motion some circumstances that would largely dictate the rest of his life. You know, prior to the ensuing problems, with the community, like you mentioned, he was an upstanding member uh, of the Talmud congregation. He paid communal taxes, he contributed all his dues and associated fees on time. He even took overt steps to maintain strong ties with the community. As you mentioned, you know, these are proud members of their community, and they definitely had their own identity, even though they were refugees just, you know, a hundred years or so before. But his search for meaning you know, questioning the Bible and all that, saying that, you know, the Bible isn't natural law, but rather a man-drafted or a human-drafted document for the purpose of establishing some sort of ceremonial law or religious law and limiting people's freedoms, really. This led the community to basically decide that they've had enough of him. He was just too high risk, and the community decided that he had to be silenced. So before they actually excommunicated him, though, 
They offered him 1,000 florins to keep quiet about his views, but he just refused. Like you said, we're going to see more and more parallels with Socrates throughout his life, but this was a big turning point, I think, for him. You know, just for reference, this would have been around like $60,000 at the time. And for all intents and purposes, it's just a lot of money. You know, much more than what $60,000 would mean today, even if it might convert to that. But still, he refused. You know, Spinoza would continue to choose maintaining his views throughout his life. So on July 27, 1656, or the 6th of Av, 5,416, if using the Jewish calendar, the leaders of the Talmud Torah issued a proclamation in front of the synagogue, and in the proclamation it was said, quote, The congregation's governing board has long known of the evil opinions and acts of Baruch de Espinosa, and have endeavored by various means and promises to turn him from his evil ways. However, having failed to make him mend his wicked ways, and on the contrary, daily receiving more and more serious information about the abominable heresies which he practiced and taught about his monstrous deeds and having for this numerous trustworthy witnesses who have deposed and borne witness to this effect in the presence of the said Espinoza, they became convinced of the truth of this matter. So this is them setting out that, you know, this is not just some sort of arbitrary proclamation. It's supported by, you know, numerous trustworthy witnesses. They, you know, mentioned that it's heresy, monstrous deeds, but again, this is kind of a vague, you know, proclamation, but nonetheless, it has a lot of power because of the people who are saying it. It was then said, after investigation into this by the rabbis, these claims, it was decided that, quote, Espinoza should be excommunicated and expelled from the people of Israel. So this was a strong message. It's one that had immediate effect. And the worst part is, is that they weren't even done. They continued, quote, by decree of the angels and by the command of the holy men, we excommunicate, expel, curse, and damn Baruch de Espinoza with the consent of God, blessed by he, and with the consent of the entire holy congregation in front of these holy scrolls with the 613 precepts which are written therein, cursing him with the excommunication with which Joshua banned Jericho and with the curse which Elisha cursed the boys and with all the castigations which are written in the book of law. They said, quote, Cursed be he by day and cursed be he by night. Cursed be he when he lies down, and cursed be he when he rises up. Cursed be he when he goes out, and cursed be he when he comes in. The Lord will not spare him, but in the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. And the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. And the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate him unto evil of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of law. But you that cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you, to this day. And so they find at the end that no one should communicate with him, not even in writing, nor accord him any favor, nor stay with him under the same roof, nor come within four cubits in his vicinity, nor shall he read any treatise composed or written by him. So this has been recognized and without exaggeration, as probably the harshest writ of harem ever pronounced upon a member of the Portuguese Jewish community in Amsterdam. I looked into it, and there were about 40 or so harems issued in the 1600s. But again, none of them even got close to this level of harshness. 
Normally, one would just be required to either ask for forgiveness or pay a fine, but not Spinoza. In fact, it was almost a foreshadowing of the importance and the kind of mark he was going to leave on the world. So also just keep in mind, this is a lot for a young person to take in. You know, Spinoza was only 23 years old at the time. So just a couple of things to note about this before we move on. First is that um, there's just no coming back from this. You know, as we'll discuss, this had profound ramifications on his life after this. And many would argue even basically, you know, dictated his life after this. And it fundamentally changed him. And, you know, maybe most importantly, it created the philosophy we're discussing today. It's probably a good time to mention that it wasn't just his age that's so striking from all this. He hadn't even written any treatises at the time. You know, as you mentioned, all until this point was just talk with people about his views. He was actually working on forming his views. I mean, he, you know, called out things, but it wasn't like he had actually printed stuff and was, you know, handing out pamphlets on the corner. In the realest way that this can be put, his fame as a philosopher, at least to the extent we know it today, was still many, many years away. Maybe the most harsh thing is just the fact that it came from within his own community. You know, as you mentioned, these Portuguese uh, refugee Jewish people, they had an identity. You know, they were a close-knit community. And at this time, Jews in Amsterdam were largely refugees. They were living at the grace of the Amsterdam government. And any notion, any perceived notion that their community could supporting heretics was just taken extremely seriously so as not to put the whole community in danger of the Amsterdam government. But still, this was, this was really strong, and it was likely a move that the Jewish community regretted, if not then, shortly after. It's also a little problematic, at least looking back now, that nothing in the harem or any document from the period can exactly what the, quote, evil opinions and acts were supposed to have been. Even, quote, abominable heresies or the, quote, monstrous deeds that he's alleged to have practiced and taught, Spinoza doesn't really dive into it deep either, at least through his letters and documents that we have today that he left behind. So we're left wondering a little, but I think it also speaks a lot of something we've already talked about, which is the trial of Socrates. You know, like Socrates, we see that these charges are essentially impiety and corruption of others. The claims are largely either by individuals that cannot show any clear wrongness or by individuals who remain unnamed or you know, just some sort of unidentified group of people instead of any one named accuser. For rationalists, as they both were, it must be all the harder given that there was just no objective wrongness in what either of them were doing. You know, it was more just that it went against the established norms at the time, norms that would propel both of them to stand for the philosophy that they did, but also to stand out among the people that were around them. These kinds of trials and accounts from these witnesses I think looking back, it kind of helps us see a little bit more into the importance of the views that they held. And it's interesting because comparing these similarities of the societies, you know, it's puzzling how, in some ways at least, this mistake would be repeated again, especially because probably the community had quite a bit of respect for someone like Socrates. I mean, he was quite well known by that time. So having said that, what are your thoughts on how Spinoza was treated versus how Socrates was treated? Well, I mean, I think it was great, great research you did on that. And that's really interesting to hear what they actually <laughs> said, right? And as you said, right, it's a small community. They are very tight-knit. And as I mentioned before, they were proud of themselves. And 
obviously, if you're banished from that group as a pretty young person, that's going to have a profound effect on you. And we can only imagine that when he was studying with the rabbis, he was asking some hard questions and was thinking about things in a rational way. You know, it certainly wasn't his moral character that was the issue here, which is similar to the issue with Socrates, right? It, it wasn't really his moral character that was the issue. It was, it was how he was gelling with the times and the people around him and the sort of sway of the mores of the time and the views of people of the time. And when you're talking about religion, it's even more intense, right? Because you've got this kind of way in which things are kind of cemented into place for a long period of time. And if you speak up and you start pointing out some issues with that, there's a lot of institutions and a lot of reputations and a lot of very intelligent people that are woven into that. And if you start rocking the boat, you're going to be immediately right corrupting the youth. You're also going to be causing people to feel worried about their own views. And when people feel worried about their own views, especially when they've got so much at stake, they lash out. And when they're challenged like that, they lash out. And we see situations like this. We'll see when we look at Spinoza in our third and fourth episodes on Spinoza, that he is thought of not only as an atheist, but as a God-intoxicated person. So why would he be a God-intoxicated person? Well, you know, that's a little clue. You know, uh, he is looking at things from a very rational perspective. He thinks that what's true and what's God is going to have to line up and that's not going to be something that's going to be out of joint. It's not going to be the case that free and rational thinking is going to be something that God is going to look down on or is going to be a problem for something like God. It's going to be more likely that it's going to be a way that you're going to bless yourself. And if God cares about anything we do, that would be something that God would care about us doing is seeking the truth and being rational. And there, right, he shares that in common with Socrates. So I don't know if that completely answers your question there or not, but those are just some thoughts I had. But yeah, great, great job expressing the uh, outrage of the society against, against Spinoza there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, thank you for your thoughts as well. So I guess, where does he go from here? So it's interesting, right? He ends up being a lens grinder. And it's funny because when I first studied Spinoza in school, in college, at the university or whatever, my professors kind of portrayed him. And it's actually, there's actually stuff about this in the literature about people portraying him as being this guy kind of like, you know, in this lonely room, maybe like a, you know, wooden kind of broken wooden floor sitting on a little, you know, three-legged stool at a kind of like incorrectly sized desk, kind of grinding away, making, you know, lenses for spectacles or something like that. And that's kind of the picture we get of this kind of like forlorn kind of character who's, you know, all by himself grinding lenses late into the night to make a, 
a small amount of money, but that's not really what was happening. He was working on lenses, but the way in which he's working on lenses is more similar to someone working on Raptor engines for Elon Musk. You know, <laughs> yes, he's working with metal, but he's really, you know, fine tuning a Raptor engine to be able to help the Starship get into orbit because he was grinding lenses for microscopes and telescopes and he was helping Christian Huygens, H-U-Y-G-E-N-S, who was a mathematician at the time and many people think one of the greatest scientists of the Renaissance. And they were working on a 40-foot telescope together, which would have been the largest in Europe at the time. And Spinoza was working on improving and basically at the very beginning of the design of microscopes. So Spinoza was working on expanding our knowledge of reality, basically, both great <laughs> and small, right, at the microscopic and macroscopic level. And Huygens is also famous for working on the, the rings of Saturn, discovering Titan, and lots of other things. But it is very interesting. So really, it's not so clear that Spinoza was kind of off by himself and just grinding lenses for spectacles. It's not really what was happening. He was really involved in kind of cutting edge scientific stuff with people that were serious. And I mean, Leibniz came to visit him at one point, you know, and there has been some debate about who took what from who between Leibniz and Spinoza. And Spinoza was obviously really into Descartes and did a lot of work on Descartes. So that's definitely interesting stuff. As you said before, he refused a lot of money at one point. He also was offered a chair of philosophy at the University of Heidelberg, which is a big honor. And he refused that and preferred to kind of like stay in kind of obscurity and uh, work in the background of things and be in the background of things. He was a very humble person. And people viewed him as a very saintly person also. So I think we, we were talking about people that really live the philosophical life at one point. And obviously Socrates is kind of the person that jumps into your mind when you think who's living the life that they're talking about, who's walking the talk really. And there are you know only a handful of people that come to mind in the philosophical world. Socrates, number one, Spinoza, and John Stuart Mill, all three of them really lived it in a very deep and profound way. And people, when they met Spinoza, thought of him as a saintly person. And for the last 20, 30 years of his life, as far as we know, he really never had a sexual life. So he was an asexual person. Now, whether that's by choice or not is another question. You know, who knows what the reason for that is. But if you study Socratic thought, you know, we know that Socrates believed in platonic relationships and John Stuart Mill did the same thing. And there we have another kind of example of that. But Spinoza basically lived a kind of monk-like life. And as we'll see in our next episode, when we look at the emendation of the intellect, we'll kind of get his account of how to be a person. And that's going to give us some insight into why he lived this sort of saintly life. But um, ultimately, you know, uh, 
Spinoza died at a pretty young age, 44 years old. So, very young person, younger than Descartes, much younger than Socrates. And he died of tuberculosis in uh, 1677. And it's thought that this tuberculosis was complicated by the fine dust which comes from grinding lenses. But I don't think we will ever know. You know, looking back at Spinoza after he died, and especially in the time period of the three great rationalists, like you said, we know that they kind of played off each other. We don't know exactly how much came from one or the other. But one thing I can really appreciate about Spinoza, and I think everyone would agree with this, is that he kind of took what was there and still turned it into his own product. And that's where he really stands out. When his theologico-political treatise was published anonymously, public reaction was really unfavorable, especially to his ideas and his version of rationalism. In it, he wrote, quote, the freedom to philosophize cannot only be granted without injury to piety and the peace of the commonwealth, but that the peace of the commonwealth and piety are endangered by the suppression of this freedom. The backlash was in fact so strong, it created this chilling effect and it prevented him from publishing any further in lifetime. You know, nearly everything we have of him was published after his death. In fact, there's an account that said that he would wear a ring, which he engraved the word cote, C-A-U-T-E, on it, which was Latin for cautiously. It symbolized him not speaking what you believe openly. And it was written underneath the drawing or the engraving of a rose, which was another symbol of secrecy. The work to really speak of, though, was his ethics. This was also published after his death, and we'll discuss it in greater detail in the coming episodes, but it was edited by his friends in secrecy to avoid confiscation and destruction of the manuscripts, and you know, one can only imagine what links were gone to just to publish this thing. The ethics today continues to be kind of a cryptic masterpiece, but it's one that really stands out as a forerunner, as you mentioned, in the mathematically modeled version of ethics, if you will. And no matter how much time has passed, he was never far out of view, though not always on the same page. So like, for instance, Karl Marx appreciated his materialistic account of the universe. Nietzsche respected Spinoza, which was high praise given that he rarely respected any philosophers. George Santayana also published an essay upon graduating college titled, quote, The Ethical Doctrine of Spinoza. And even John Locke, who spent a little bit of time in Amsterdam, was influenced by Spinoza's ideas, especially of religious tolerance and of democratic government, and so on. But immediately following his death, many of his works were banned all throughout Holland. Many Jews saw him as a traitor, many Christians viewed him as someone who was trying to undermine their beliefs in some way. And you know, for many, it was views he held on the Bible, on prophecy, and on miracles that just went too far. They directly contradicted, in the Christian and in the Jewish view, God himself. And maybe more to the point, because much of the power granted to the state, especially at that time, came through the church, there's a strong incentive to try and minimize anything that would begin to take away such power from the theological institutions. But it doesn't actually seem, when you, when you look closer at him, it doesn't look like he's actively going directly for the state, or even for religion for that matter. He's rather more seeking truth, and unfortunately the way that society was established and life was situated at the time, it meant that religion and the state hindered one's ability to seek the truth, also kind of like Socrates. So, in your point of view, why does Spinoza, in the context of the life that he lived, stand out to you as someone that 
everyone should take a second look at or spend a little bit of time into looking into who he was and what he did. Well, I think, as you said, right, the ethics is this kind of cryptic work, which, if it works, is awesome because it is an attempt to kind of give you a first principle and then derive deductively from the first principle the whole nature of existence, right? And so, I mean, that is an ambitious project, right? That is the project for any, you know, rationalist. That is the ultimate project. And so if we kind of think of rationalism, starting with Plato and then going through time and getting to Spinoza, it's really in Spinoza that we see it coming to fruition and getting to a point where there's a real serious attempt being made at starting, first of all, getting to a first principle, and then from a first principle, deriving things axiomatically, like you would with Euclid's geometry. And that's really what Spinoza tries to do with the ethics, is he tries to model something like a Euclid's geometric system, where you've got these very basic axiomatic principles, and from those you can derive all these other things about the nature of geometric shapes. Here, Spinoza is starting with God, or for Plato, the form of the good. And from that, he's axiomatically deriving all of these other things and talking about the nature of reality and talking about it in a rational way that's structured in a very kind of mathematically careful way. And if we remember when we were looking at Descartes and we were looking at the meditations, you know, he was saying that, you know, if you're looking at these things in an open-minded and very careful way, you'll see that these arguments are more certain than the arguments of geometry. But I think though, even though Descartes said that, I think it's something that's more likely to be something we could say about Spinoza and the ethics. But it is a very difficult work, but we will definitely take a good look at it in the episode after the next episode here and see what we can see <laughs> in the deductive method that Spinoza uses. So that's one thing to take from Spinoza's life and work. Another thing to take from Spinoza's life and work, I think, you know, and this is maybe me more so than a lot of other people or something like that, but I think that the emendation of the intellect, the thing we're going to talk about in the very next episode, is very interesting because it, it lays out his kind of way of thinking about life and what is the source of happiness? Where does happiness come from? And what's important? What's important to care about in life? And as we know from Plato and Socrates, that's the most important thing to think about. And not just think about it, as Aristotle told us, any kind of philosophical story or account or argument is only as good as it is able to be put into practice. That's how good it is. So if you've got some really great argument, but it's not something that can help me live a better life, it's not really that important. It's going to come down to what can help me live a better, more happy life, a more effective and more powerful life as a person. And that's the stuff that I need to care about. And this is something we've, we see in lots of places, but we see that in Spinoza. So those are sort of philosophical reasons to pay attention to Spinoza. But I think the fact that he was able to live a saintly life in conjunction with his philosophical work tells us something about him, and it tells us something about our own potential and what we may be able to achieve with our lives 
And I think that might be the most important thing about Spinoza. So as we can see from Spinoza, one of the great paradoxes from modern history, one of the most important Jewish philosophers who ever lived, and maybe perhaps who had the greatest influence on modern Judaism, is the one Jewish philosopher that was excommunicated. We discussed how Baruch de Spinoza, born 1632 to 1677 in Amsterdam, was the child of recent immigrants who fled the Portuguese expedition for safety and tolerance that the Dutch Republic provided at the time. As we mentioned, his name translates to blessed, and he was born in a thriving center of a Jewish commercial area, as well as an area that was quite open to thought at the time. He was part of a successful merchant family, and the young Spinoza would go on to receive a pretty good education and really stood out with the rabbis at the time. He was quite studious. He worked really hard. He was brilliant. He was multilingual. He was philosophically minded, even from an early age. And although he didn't publish much at the time, just talk alone of his ideas had stirred up so much controversy and so much problem and spread so fast in the community that at the age of 24, he was expelled under a writ of harem from the Jewish community of Amsterdam, which we read parts of. He then left Amsterdam and began living in Leiden, outside of The Hague. He earned his living as a lens grinder, as we went over, and he did turn down many opportunities, including a professorship at the University of Heidelberg, because he thought that at the end of the day, it would interfere with his independence of mind, and being a saint or a saintly person and actually pursuing the truth was the number one thing that he wanted to do. He was a young age from tuberculosis, uh, complicated, at least some people believe, from the inhalation of glass over years of lens grinding at the age of 44, and his greatest philosophical work, The Ethics, which we'll discuss in the following episodes, was published after his death. So just one question, I guess, to round off our discussion of the life of Spinoza. How interesting do you think it is that both Descartes and Spinoza, you know, leading philosophical figures looking back, they both lived during the Dutch Golden Age and kind of rose to prominence in that area, but neither were of Dutch descent. What do you make of that? No, absolutely. And I think we alluded to it earlier, right, that it was really a kind of safe place for thinkers, you know, and I think that is usually the case, right, where you see real powerful innovation and progress in a profound way, you need to have a pretty liberal environment for that to happen. And it makes sense because if you're in a conservative place, they're not going to be up for a bunch of new ideas and new ways of thinking about things. So I think it's critical for progress of the intellectual kind that there are places like this on the earth where a person can think freely and express themselves. I think it's hard for people to do that today. I think it's hard for people to really speak freely and express themselves today. And there are a lot of places in the world that are considered liberal and are considered to be kind of free and free thinking. But I wonder how true that really is. 
I think there, you know, we we need to think about that. We need to think about how free are we to really pursue and examine the truth and express it to each other. How free are we to do that in our own society? And I think we view our society as one that's kind of founded on that idea, founded on the idea of a freedom of expression and a liberality when it comes to what a person's religious views are or whether or not they have religious views. And so it is interesting. If it's true that we need to have an environment that allows for freedom of thinking and expression for there to be real progress, then it's probably pretty important for us to make sure that those types of places exist. <laughs> so I think that's my kind of view on that. You're right. I mean, limitations and restrictions come in so many different forms as well. You're right, though. I mean, how, how free are we? And even if we have that freedom, how free do we feel to actually act on it, right? There are both like kind of direct and indirect limitations. I hope we all consider that a little bit more. I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope that this discussion inspired you on your own search for truth. And as always, we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends.